Travel humanizes our planet. And travelers know hunger across the sea is every bit as tragic as hunger across the street. I'm Rick Steves. Today on Travel with Rick Steves, we're exploring the economic roots of hunger. No guilt trips here. We're sharing ways to connect constructively with the half of humanity struggling to live on $2 a day. Especially poignant these days as nearly all of us are dealing with economic challenges of our own. Two experts on world hunger who understand the reasons for hunger amid all this world's affluence are joining us today. Reverend David Beckman is a Lutheran clergyman who now heads Bread for the World in Washington, D.C. He'll explain how advocacy, encouraging our government, can help millions of hungry people. And Mercy Karanja is an agriculture expert from Kenya. She now works with the Gates Foundation and knows how world markets can combat poverty. Stay with us as we look at smart help for the developing world on Travel with Rick Steves. If times are tough for us, imagine what times are like in the developing world. When times were good, a lot of us caring Americans were very generous, caring for people for whom times were tough. Now times are tough for us. Does that mean we should bail out on these people? Does that mean we're in as bad a shape as them? Or does that mean times are even tougher for them? Today, we're going to talk about that. I'm joined by David Beckman, who's the uh, president for 18 years of an organization called Bread for the World that lobbies our government to be sensitive to the needs of homeless and hungry people here in the United States and around the world. David was a senior advisor at the World Bank. He's a Lutheran pastor, and now he dedicates his work to running Bread for the World. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you. David, this is such a poignant time because all of us are looking at our own retirement counts and so on, and a lot of us are having to work longer than what we hoped because of our economic straits. But at the same time, there's a reality on this planet, and maybe we lose track of what's going on in the rest of the world. What is the state of the world now as far as hunger goes? Well, times are tough. Uh, Starting in our own country, the Food banks are reporting that the requests for emergency assistance in our own country are up 40% over the last 12 months. A lot of people are unemployed. You know, if a mother's working a couple jobs and has a couple kids, if she loses one of those jobs, that really is very tough, and those kids might go hungry. And then the people who've been hit hardest by the economic turmoil are a couple hundred million of the poorest people in the world. They've been hit by high prices for rice and wheat and corn, and now by the recession, it's spreading all over the world. I've been talking about this myself on occasion, and I routinely use the sort of line, half of humanity, 3 billion-plus people, are trying to live on $2 a day, and 1 billion people are trying to live on $1 a day. Is that still roughly accurate? That's right, and uh, the number's gone up. I mean, it's really 1.4 billion who live on less than a dollar and a quarter. That's gone up to 1.5 billion because of the economy. Now, you know, that sounds sort of wonky, but over the last uh, 15 years, we saw that number come down, and now in the last 15 months, it's gone up again. Because of the financial crisis. The recession that started on our Wall Street is now in the ports of Mozambique. And Yeah. I was just in Mexico, and they told me down there, when the United States catches a cold, we catch pneumonia. What what does that mean to you as far as Mexico, but for the entire developing world? Right. It affects different countries differently, but it's true. And actually, just in this country, it's unemployment that's really the killer. Among the poorest people of the world, it's the high prices for wheat, rice, and corn. Because a poor family in the developing world maybe spends two-thirds of everything they have to buy rice. And those prices for the basic grains are all 50 to 100% higher than they were two years ago. So a lot of kids are dying because of that. Even from a tourism point of view, when you go to Europe, you hear about Italians just kind of rioting because of the cost of pasta going through the ceiling. Sure. Well, of course. I mean, Italians are having a tough time with an expensive bowl of spaghetti, but they're not going to go hungry. But for a lot of people, that's their sustenance. Right. They don't eat meat. They don't eat vegetables. What they eat is something made out of corn or something... I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Beckman, and David is the president of Bread for the World. It's a Christian citizens movement that lobbies our government to be more sensitive in its legislation to the needs of hungry and homeless people, both here in the United States and around the world. Did I get that right? You got it. All right. Now, David, <laughs> when, we're, when we're thinking of all these billions, trillions of dollars being thrown at our economic stimulus— A lot of money is being invested in poor people because that's a passion of Obama's and our legislators and our Mm -hmm. electorate and so on. Tell us what is, with all these billions of dollars that are being talked about, and I know it's changing and you can't predict the future, but roughly, of all this money, how much of it 
is a is an exciting opportunity for people like you who are trying to address the needs of hungry and homeless people here in the United States. How much does that give you the wherewithal to do your work here domestically? And then what impact of the stimulus money is going outside of our borders? I'm actually pretty impressed by uh, the Obama stimulus package. I mean, there are a lot of controversies about it. I know that. But I'm struck that uh, that they've done a good job of providing some assistance and protection to some of the poorest people, struggling families, and also investments in education for poor kids so that they can contribute to the economy. I know over the years, Bread for the World has had different initiatives about food stamps or about sure. um, education and help for kids who are of just a single mom or whatever. What are the exciting, tangible, concrete areas where money is going to go that's going to help on the edge people that are almost homeless and almost hungry? Well, it's mostly just uh, trying to help these people from getting a lot poorer or at least I think one of the things I'm most excited about is there's been some commitment to expand nutrition programs for small children. That's an area where Bread for the World really plans to work to get that job done so that during this recession, not so many kids, uh, additional kids go hungry. You know, that would just do permanent long-term damage to those kids in our society. So that's an area where we can protect uh, poor people. At the same time, it's an investment in the future of our whole country. I would imagine it's a tough sell these days to take stimulus money and send it overseas. Is all of the stimulus money that is helping poor people helping poor people in the United States? So far, but we've got to do that. And it makes sense to do it. Because of this huge increase in hunger and poverty in the world, it makes sense to try to cushion that blow also, there's a lot of dynamism among the, the poorest people of the world. You know, hundreds of millions of people have escaped from poverty over the last few decades. In countries like China, Uganda, Ghana, you know, with some help, they can get through this crisis and help our economy uh, recover. So it makes, makes sense to do that. Also, you know, we're trying to, at Bread for the World, we're campaigning to get our foreign assistance more effective. Mm-hmm. With, it's not just more money, but at a time like this, we ought to spend that money well, get more of it to the people who really need help. I want to talk about that in a minute. First of all, I I think a a good way to measure the health of an economy is comparing the top 20% to the bottom 20% on the economic sort of rung, the top, what, quintile and the bottom quintile. Is that gap in the United States and then between the rich world and the poor world, what's the latest with that gap? Is it growing or is it getting closer together? It's grown tremendously, certainly in this country in a scandalous way. Over the course of this decade, uh, that gap between rich and poor has broadened, and I think also in the world. You know, in my travels, I come home and I, and I realize even if you're motivated only by greed, if you know what's good for you, you don't want to be filthy rich in a desperately poor world. It's just not a pretty picture. You don't want to raise your kids behind deadbolts. Do you think people get that? I think actually Americans do get that it's not smart to put up with misery in far-off places. I think, you know, we got that from 9-11. I don't think we get it quite as much that it's not smart to put up with misery in close places. We've increased our response to global poverty and had some success in reducing global poverty in our own country over this decade. And even when the economy was growing, poverty was growing. I mean, that must be your challenge as a teacher to, to try to let people get their brains around this. Let's just talk a little bit about the economics of poverty. Uh, by the way, I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm talking with David Beckman, who's the president of Bread for the World. Uh, to learn more about David's work, you can go to their website. It's bread.org. Their initiative for this year is to help our government redefine foreign aid so it actually does the most to help hungry people. Sounds kind of elementary. We'll talk about that in a minute. But first, I want to talk about some of these fundamentals of fighting poverty. My image of a, of a development aid organization or something is not just shipping bags of corn overseas because that actually demoralizes local farmers, right? Often. But actually helping people to farm in their own communities. Sure, and I think uh, most of our charitable organizations, in fact, are doing a lot of that. They're not just passing out... Uh, K-rations. No. <laughs> when you say feed the world, it's not like moving the, food over there. The point is to help African farmers be more productive and let their kids go to school so that over the next generation, they'll be a lot more productive. So any enlightened development agency wants to help farmers in their own communities feed their own people. Sure. Okay. A lot of skeptics say, well, if you feed the poor, they're just going to have more babies and there's going to be more poor people. Stop feeding them and that might solve the problem. Well, it's just, I mean, it's not true that if poor people see an improvement in their welfare so that they so their kids are less likely to die especially if their girls get to go to school that reduces the rate of population growth when a society becomes more affluent its birth rate goes down right and the the best contraceptive is to let girls read and write wow 
what motivates a lot of people to have children in the poor world is the fear of who's going to take care of them when they get old. And there's such a high infant mortality rate, they'll have a lot of kids because there's no other safety net for them in hopes that a few of their kids will survive and take care of them when they're unable to take care of themselves. That's right. So if you give a society the structure to give its, its own sort of dignity and decency economically, history teaches us the birth rate goes down. And if, and if women have a little education, if they have some legal rights... Um, it just changes the dynamic in the marriage and, and family size uh, reduces. So the fact is, on this planet, the men are slackers and the women get it done. <laughs> is that what you're saying? There's some truth in that. There yeah. is a lot of the men just <laughs> dream about uh, you know, getting on with women and, and drinking. And it's the women that end up raising the kids. There's a lot of truth in it. And in a good part of the world, the average lot in life for women is to walk hours a day just to bring water home. That's true. Still true? It's true. It's And it's just uh, tragic. You know, these... Women and their girls walking miles and miles and miles carrying these uh, huge, uh, heavy cans of water. Water is heavy if you carry it a mile. I'm always interested how there's a lot of people that really are into women's issues. And to me, the ultimate woman's issue is this reality that the average woman on this planet walks for water. She gets up at 4 in the morning. She she starts to cook the breakfast. She cleans, you know, she sweeps the outside the house. Then she goes for water. And, you know, it's all day long till she drops into bed at 11 o'clock at night. And, David, third world debt has been a big concern. I remember when I was studying this that when there was a glut of capital in the first world, it was loaned to the developing world. That money was squandered or ended up in Switzerland or whatever. And today these developing countries are stuck with this huge debt to the rich world. And in 30-some countries, they're still paying half of their national income to debt service. And that's, to me, sort of the the slavery of the 21st century in a lot of ways. I know Bread for the World has done a lot to work for third world debt relief, but of course with constraints so that it is done responsibly and the money is not squandered. Right. We uh, Bread for the World and church groups and others did get some reduction in the debts of uh, well-governed poor countries, and it's made a huge difference. In Africa, for example, there are 29 million more kids in school now than were in school in the year 2000, and that was financed by debt relief. It's a big success, and I think it's important for us to be clear that uh, hundreds of millions of people have escaped from poverty over the last few decades. So this is not a hopeless story. There's reason to be positive. Absolutely. This is an opportunity. Absolutely. And we're going to talk more about that in a minute. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by David Beckman, president of Bread for the World. Our telephone number, 877-333-7425, or you can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Kaji meitame ole dapash, aingwa Maasai land, naisafiri orik stiff. That's in my Maasai language. My name is meitame ole dapash. I'm from Maasai land in Kenya, and I travel with Rick Steve. Kaji meitame ole dapash, naingwa Maasai land, naisafiri orik stiff. 
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined today by David Beckman, president of Bread for the World, as we talk about the economics of poverty and what's going on in this world with hungry people and what are people doing about it. I think it's exciting to know that we've really accomplished a lot. I mean, a lot of people just think, oh, all the starving people in Bangladesh, don't tell me about <laughs> it. It's like overwhelming. Should it be overwhelming or, or, or what? Overall, I'm hopeful. I, I just came back from a trip to Mozambique. I got to go way out in a remote area, visit a little place called Timbe, which was a settlement of 40 households 100 miles from the nearest road. Uh, we got there by lake. The people met us on the lakeshore, and then they, singing and dancing, took us up to their church. They started talking about the things that they've done in, in Timbe. First, they have peace. They went through 16 years of really gruesome war. Most of their kids are in school now. That was not the case 10 years ago. There are people in Mtimbe who have access to AIDS medication. Uh, when AIDS first hit Mtimbe, it was just a terrible, horrible thing. But now people can get help. And then people in Mtimbe, Mozambique, have cell phones. Not everybody, but a few people have cell phones. They don't have electricity. But when the sun goes down... It's very dark, and across the lake you can see the tower for the cell phones. It is interesting how there's a lot of creative developmental work going on, and in some cases, societies are leapfrogging technologies, and they're going right into wireless technology. Exactly. And... In, in Africa as a whole, there are now 200 million cell phones. It's growing by 60 million a year. And more generally, the story of Mtimbe is the story of tens of thousands of communities in Africa and the developing countries Hundreds of millions of people have escaped extreme poverty over the last few decades. Uh, right now, we have a, a big setback in that progress against poverty, but the story is a story of hope. And it's not meaning shiploads of grain coming in from America. It's American ingenuity and American ideas partnering with hardworking local people so they can lift themselves up. Isn't and it's it? mainly the local people. They work hard, yeah. and we can make a contribution. David, your organization, Bread for the World, is into advocacy, meaning encouraging our government to respond. And then there's charities that are developmental agencies. It's two different ways that people can leverage their concerns. Yeah, both, both are important. We think you have to walk on two legs. There's the leg of actually directly helping people, but then there's the leg of changing public policies so that people can help themselves. Advocacy is a foreign concept to some people. It's kind of like lobbying, isn't it? It, well, it is, except, you I'm know... I'm sorry, that's not a term you probably <laughs> use. It's so people talking to their own representatives. We're, we live in a democracy, and, you know, I've been at a lot of meetings with U.S. senators, with constituents. They treat me like a chair. They treat the constituents. They are the boss. And so if we need to use that power. For example, many people are helping food banks, food charities. That's wonderful. But all the food that's collected by all the food banks and food charities in the country amounts to something like one-twentieth of the value of the federal government's nutrition programs, food stamps, WIC, school lunches. So if Congress cuts those programs by 5%, it effectively would wipe out everything that we do through charity. So we've got to do both. We've got to do that charity, but we've also got to make sure that uh, government programs are the right size and that they're well run. So do you find that legislators, congresspeople, and senators are open to being active in this regard as long as they get the sense that their constituents want it. My sense is most members of Congress went into it because they want to serve the common good, and then they get jerked around by all these interest groups that come in and push them to get something special. For, and so if a group of, of concerned citizens come in and they want to make the world better, most members of Congress are glad to see them and glad to help. You run Bread for the World, and you're set up just like any sort of lobby outfit in Washington, D.C. on K Street or whatever. Well, except our <laughs> our lobbyists, our best lobbyists are regular people around the country who have a heart for hungry and poor people, Yeah, are willing to use their heads. Oh, I as... see. You get the people to lobby. Right. It's not okay. just us. I'm, see, I look at you not as a charity, but as a service. And I care about these <laughs> people that are hungry, and I'd like you to tell my government that uh, we got to be sensitive to that. But you also go the other way, encouraging and showing how citizens can be in touch with their Congress, Which is directly. much more powerful. We do have a staff in Washington okay. that can do part of it. But the powerful thing is that we provide specific information to concerned citizens. So they know that if they can take 15 minutes to write a letter to their senator, thousands of people across the country are writing a letter at the same time. And it's about something that really has a chance to make a difference. What we learn is it takes time, but we win big things for tens of millions of people. So for example, 
right now the U.S. government is spending more than twice as much to reduce poverty in the world than we did in the year 2000. It's still one half of 1% of the federal budget, but that's billions of dollars more. In our budget, it's not a huge amount of money, but in the poorest countries of the world, it's helped many African countries, for example, to achieve sustained growth and democracies. Um, So so we've made a difference. David, when you think back on 18 years of running Bread for the World, in all of the letter-writing campaigns you've done, What's one of the fondest accomplishments and triumph where you've mobilized thousands of Americans to send letters to their congresspeople? I loved uh, writing off some of the debts of the world's poorest countries. It was just beautiful. I mean, it needed to happen. But then what was so remarkable is when we started, we just had no support from the president, from Congress. And it was grassroots people who got that that was the right thing to do. They spoke to their members of Congress, one after another, conservatives, liberals. And in the end, we won big. And one result of that is 29 million more African kids are in school now. This year, what is the initiative for Bread We're for pushing world? for a broad reform of foreign assistance. We think uh, in a time like this, we need to use our foreign aid dollars just as well as possible and get more of those dollars to people in need. And what's your gripe with the status quo? We need one strong, accountable agency. We need it to be more focused on development and poverty reduction and fewer earmarks so that it can be more responsive to the local situations and the local priorities. Isn't a good percent of what we call foreign aid right now taking care of our allies with military aid? And even the aid that's supposedly going to poor people is also serving our own national interests. And so it's, it's, got, it's not really foreign aid. I mean, in fact, our national interest in security will be well served if we can help to reduce poverty. But if you try to use the same dollar to buy an Air Force base and also help poor people, you probably won't help the poor people. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with David Beckman, who's the president of Bread for the World. That organization is bread.org. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. And Andrew's on the phone in San Jose, California. Andrew, thanks for your call. Thanks very much, Rick. Yeah, I was wondering, um, I've been seeing news reports showing that the people in Haiti are having to actually eat dirt. They bake uh, dirt into mud pies and they're feeding this to their children. Is it a function of the unrest in the country that makes them have to do that? And is there something that can be done to fix this? So the association with unrest and this unfortunate uh, hunger and so on. It's true. I think in in Haiti there's a a kind of mud that can that can be cooked into cookies, and so people who are really hungry use that as a way to fill their children's stomachs. And it's not just in Haiti; it's all over the world. You know, when people have to go hungry for a long period of time, they find grasses or bark or something to fill the stomachs. And so th- the problem is hunger. Uh, the the mud cakes got publicized because the prices of uh, rice, wheat, corn are all 50 to 100 percent higher than they were two years ago. So for people who spend most of everything they have on what rice, wheat, or corn, hmm. they're going hungry. And in Haiti, people are making mud cakes. So this is not nourishment. It's just to fill the stomach, and they, it doesn't right. nourish them. When I was in Egypt, I was shocked to see that the children begging, instead of begging for money, they begged for a pen for school. Everywhere I went, it seemed. And I thought, you know, can't we coordinate something like ask the big pen people or the paper make people, uh, can't you donate enough pens to make sure that nobody is going wanting for a pen for school? My my hunch that these clever kids that deal with the tourists, and if they ask for money, the tourists will turn them away. If they ask for a pen, they'll say, oh, dear, aren't they beautiful? Let's give them a pen and some money. I'm uh, sorry to be so skeptical, but those Egypt, beggars are really clever. Egypt, because of the pyramids, they've had a lot of tourists for about 4,000 years. Rick may be onto something here. In Egypt, the kids would ask me for a quarter because they're coin collectors, and then they go to the next tourist and say, somebody gave me a quarter. I can't use it here. Will you give me some of our local money for it? Well, you know what? It's the, the way that they snatched the pen from my hands so greedily. And well, they... when I travel as a tour guide, I remind my travelers, keep track of all of your emotions and all of the care and how you want to love these kids. And rather than spoil them by making them think of tourists as uh, sources for begging, go home and activate your compassion by supporting a charity or an advocacy group. Andrew, thanks for your call. Thank you very much. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with David Beckman, the president of Bread for the World. We're talking about structural poverty and our nation's place in it. And Gretchen's on the line in Minneapolis. Hi, Gretchen. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. 
Thank you. Do you have a comment or a question for David? I, I do. Um, I went with a small group from my church in South Minneapolis last July to Guatemala, and the purpose of the trip was not a work trip. It was to meet with and learn from uh, Mayan people, largely in small mountain villages um, in Guatemala, people who had experienced horrible human rights atrocities during the 1980s, and much of what we learned about was that the exploitation of these folks is still going on in terms of um, large mining companies, Canadian and U.S. mining companies, coming in and basically taking their land and the environmental harm that results from that and the health issues. And in many other ways, these people are still being exploited by the policies perpetrated by our government and others. Let's and let David talk about that because I think that's the typical liberal uh, gripe, and I want to know if there's much to it. But, David, it just seems like when first-world corporations go into the developing world, they're just interested in cheap labor and getting their hands on those resources, and it angers a lot of local people. Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag. I think they also do a lot of good. But in, in the Guatemala case, another part of it is our sugar policies. We block the importation of Guatemalan sugar into the U.S., uh, I had talked with, um, they have a minister of food security in Guatemala because so many kids, I think 50% of Guatemalan kids go hungry. And when I told him we were working on trying to uh, reduce U.S. protectionism for sugar, he said, your sugar policies are killing our kids. Mm-hmm. So that's, it's another instance where this isn't so much our corporate, well, it's, it's corporate agriculture that's doing business here, manages right. to get Congress to protect them at the expense of sugar producers in poor countries. Right. And we happened to visit a a village that was really being devastated by the practices of a gold mining, Mm. a Canadian-U.S. gold mining company that was driving people off the land they had been on for generations and polluting the water. And that was really much of the conversation that we had with local people was about that. That's really, I'm really impressed that you did that. Um, It's so important that more Americans now are traveling often with their churches. They're going all over the world. But I appreciate the fact that you went mainly, frankly, to learn. That was we great. went completely for that reason, and started asking. We were with uh, an organization that does work in Guatemala. Um, Rights Action is the name of the organization. We started asking, of course, r- right away. And <laughs> these problems are so huge and systemic. It seemed, what what can we do when we go back home? You know, after a couple of weeks. What can we do? And and one of the answers was start talking with your policymakers, you know, local, national, whatever. So one of my questions is what recommendations you have about how to get the attention of policymakers on these issues, particularly now given the incredible number of issues it seems that we're facing. Well, I, th- I think you can you can do it. You know, make sure if you write them a letter, have your return on address on there. Make sure that they know you're a constituent in their district. Uh, you can call your member of Congress's office, and you can try to set up a meeting. If not with the member, with staff, they'll meet with you, and mm-hmm. they want to know what you're thinking. And you've learned some important things about Guatemala. So uh, take advantage of that and share it with your policymaker. I think it helps to be part of big campaigns. So join Bread for the World or mm-hmm. join one, some other advocacy network that's working on a campaign so that, you know, it's not just by yourself that right. you're going with your own experience. That's useful. But what's more useful is to be part of a change process so that you're weighing in with tens of thousands of other people and you, you see it through over a period of two or three years and you make change. Gretchen, thanks for your call. Thank you, Rick. And thanks for your Bye-bye. thoughtful travel. It's so great when people travel to educate themselves about yeah. the reality on this planet. Our telephone number, 877-333-7425. Suzanne's on the phone in San Pablo, California. Suzanne, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thanks for taking my question. Yeah. It's very exciting to hear all the positive steps being taken around the world to end poverty, but I feel like if we truly want to change or help poor nations develop, that we need to reassess our global trade policies that are geared towards cheap labor and cheap goods at all costs. And I'm wondering if David has a sense of any kind of shift taking place in the global trade realm that, or or at least for citizens, that we're starting to understand that there's a price to pay for all these cheap goods. Bread for the World's thinking about 
trade is that uh, we think, I mean, basically the trade is good for poor people, but that uh, when there are trade agreements, there should be provisions to protect uh, basic labor rights as well as the environment and food security. But we're not anti-trade. So right now, the biggest pending trade agreement is what's called the Doha Round. If we could finish that, there would be a global reduction in agricultural protectionism. Our protectionist subsidies go mostly to affluent landholders in this country. And in Europe, it's mostly affluent people who get that protection. So this is an area where we could open up trade in ways that would be good for farmers and rural America and also really good for poor farmers around the world. So I see some advantages in trade, but you're right that I think the labor rights point is the point. If you make sure that people have a right to organize, that they can have unions, then they can defend their own interests. Does our government support other governments, uh, encourage other governments to let their workers organize? Not consistently. So I think as we develop trade agreements, that should just be part of it, that Anywhere in the world, you shouldn't have slave labor, you shouldn't have child labor, and you should let people organize. Then, I mean, still, people in uh, Haiti are going to be willing to put up with really low wages. And they can decide if it's a better deal than they have uh, without the trade. Last year, I went to the United Nations website and looked up the voting record when it was dealing with child labor in the third world. The United States was outvoted 140 to 4 on that issue. Wow, I didn't know that. It's just amazing how we can have an impact on the developing world. From a And to talk more about workers' rights, in a moment we'll be joined by the former director of the Farmers' Union from Kenya. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. Our email address, radio at ricksteves.com. Today, our topic, smart help for the developing world. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we're talking about smart help for the developing world. Our phone number, 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. Rico in Redding, California emailed us, and Rico writes, During my travels around this glorious world, I've experienced my share of third-world countries. I've learned the hard way that I couldn't change the plight of an entire village. So there's some skepticism about there. It's just really how can we change this? It can be an overwhelming problem. To talk a little bit about our connection with the developing world, we're joined right now by Mercy Karanja. Mercy is the former director of the Farmers Union in Kenya, and today she works with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Mercy, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. When you listen to this discussion, what are your thoughts? I think it's great that we are even having it because for a long time we've not been talking about these issues, they have been put in the back of the seat. So um, I'm very excited that we are bringing these great issues back on the table and causing people to think about poverty and hunger again. It's wonderful to have you here. What was your work in Kenya as the uh, director of the Farmers Union? My work was really to make farmers be more responsive to the needs that they have. And let me back up a bit and say this was a moment when government actually stood back and stopped offering public services to the farmers. There was no extension. There was no services for the smallholder farmers. Farmers had to reorganize themselves to get these services for themselves. So this was an example of what we call an NGO, a non-government organization. It's a non-government organization. It's member-based farmers coming together to solve the problems that they were facing. Were you good as the director? 
there are some great things that happened, and that makes me think some of the, uh, Tell us what your triumph was. What's your favorite triumph? Well, one of them is that the farmers themselves came together and recognized that they have to get the services for themselves and drive their agenda for development. That's what we are talking about. Farmers driving country agendas in relation to agricultural development. And right now, as I sit there, I know my farmers in Kenya are right in the front seat. This is a huge shift from where I was in government before, before going to the farmers' organization, and we thought we knew everything that <laughs> farmers needed. So having come from government to farmers' organization, it was quite easy to make that shift. Get the government out of the way and get, let the farmers do it. Let the farmers do it. If you're a farmer in Kenya and you have all sorts of caring Americans sending lots of bags of corn to Kenya, does that help or hurt? T- times it helps. Times it really hurt. And I had to deal with these kinds of issues time and time again. How does it hurt? Because, I mean, I, I know it's counterintuitive. I'd like you to explain to Americans how sometimes food aid can actually cause a problem. We had this particular moment in Kenya when I was a director that we had just harvested our great maize and we had what you call corn here. And we had a great harvest. At that particular point in time, there were three ships in the waters bringing in flour from the United States in the name of food aid. And suddenly our farmers couldn't sell their maize. This was a problem that was in my hands. And it was a huge, deep negotiation with the government so that they can come back and protect the market. Because you need, the Kenyan people need farmers in Kenya producing food. So it would have been better for you to stop the ships. That's what we did. You stopped the ships? We stopped the ships. We stopped them. And we got the millers and everybody else to buy the Kenyan maize fast. Farmers today, they do it more and more. And this is the first time they really had huge success to know that they had to stop the ships. Most of them were actually turned back at that particular time. The ships were turned back? Yes, and I had many calls from everywhere. And that must have empowered the farmers to believe we can organize and help ourselves be productive. It did. It did. And today they are able to say, no, we have maize, we have wheat. They also become responsible to be able to give the statistics of what they are producing so that the government is able to plan and say, okay, we need 30 million bags of maize. That is what Kenya needs annually. And we have produced 26 million. Can we import that difference other than just uh, getting unplanned production and therefore the government raising alum when there is actually a harvest in the farmers' fields? What can you tell to Americans who care about hungry people around the world, but we're dealing with our own financial stress and problems? What is the best way that we can help, for example, farmers in Kenya? America is doing a lot in a lot of ways, different channels and different systems. And the best we can do, again, going back to a question that was asked, is to allow trade to happen and allow farmers in Africa to be able to sell in their own market and also allow markets in this country. That is key, especially when you talk about the commodities, cotton, coffee, and other big And allow them to trade freely with the first world. Allow them to trade freely with the first world. Because here's an example, which is very painful to me. I understand, and tell me if this is, if this is accurate. Many countries that grow, let's say, peanuts, they can export peanuts, but they cannot export peanut butter because peanut butter is more profitable. The rich world gets to buy the raw peanuts cheap. They process it, and then the real profit is in selling peanut butter. And that sort of structural poverty keeps the poor world poor. Do you see what I'm saying? You have hit exactly the problem that we're still facing. And this is a discussion on trade that hasn't really helped Africa over time. Talk about especially cocoa, and cocoa cocoa is big. We have huge manufacturers all based out of Africa and they will never allow because of the structural Structural poverty. This is structural structural poverty. poverty. They don't allow the African countries to add value in their own countries so that they can export a higher value. Not only export, they can also create jobs. Farming is not the job for Africans. They need manufacturing. They need the next level of processing. And this is why we have not been able to expand the economy 
because even as we are farming, we need to expand in line with the same base of agriculture. This is what cost Europe and U.S. to get out of poverty by expanding. They started with agriculture and then expanded and developed industries out of agriculture. And that is why we still have good packaging. We still have great agricultural factories and agricultural products in these developed countries. So tariffs and trade organizations keep the poor world selling their natural resources unprocessed, so the real profit is made after that stuff is exported. David Beckman, tell me about those issues and if that's something our government uh, is sensitive to. What I love is that Mercy, what she's explaining is African poor people who are doing advocacy with their own governments, just the way people in this country are doing advocacy with our government. And it's interesting that she's focusing on the issue of trade. I think we have a chance, probably not this year, but next year, in getting a new round of multilateral trade negotiations completed. We need it in order to stimulate the growth of the economy. The negotiations that have been developed over the last few years, in fact, put a priority on liberalizing trade in agriculture. It's a big inefficiency in our country that we give big subsidies mostly to wealthy people. It's not to poor farmers. That money could be used in our own country in a way that would benefit rural Iowa, rural Texas, And by liberalizing trade, our farmers could export into Europe, and it would be outrageously good for farmers in Africa. Now, is that realistic to advocate this sort of idea to get our government to be tuned into this issue? We need to, and I I think our economic problems are going to drive our government and other governments around the world to negotiate this trade agreement because it's good for our own economy, but it's disproportionately good for rural people in developing countries. You know, when powerful actors and weak actors are in the same scene, the powerful actors push things around so that weak actors uh, get further impoverished. That happens often. And by changing that, sometimes markets are kinder to poor people than government manipulations. You know, because rich people can get the government to manipulate things to help them. And if you can just open it up and let the market work, this is the case. Like Mercy said, get government out of the way. Well, in this case, if we could have freer trade in agriculture, freer trade than what we've got now. It would be good for our economy, good for our stock market, good for the the whole global economy, and it would be very good for African farmers. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by two experts on world hunger who understand the reasons for hunger amid all this world's affluence. Reverend David Beckman is a Lutheran clergyman who now heads Bread for the World in Washington, D.C. And Mercy Karanja is an agriculture expert from Kenya. Mercy Karanja, you're now working with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. What is your role at the Gates Foundation, and does the Gates Foundation understand this peanuts and peanut butter issue we're talking about? At the Gates Foundation, my role is very exciting because it's to make sure that we keep our eyes focused on the smallholder farmers. I love that because we we can easily be thinking about big uh, science breakthroughs, but we keep focused on farmers and mainly how to get even the upstream technologies developed to them and bring their voices into our work. That's really my role. And I'm excited that there's this great opportunity to bring farmers' voices into what we do. So I'm I'm very excited about that. On uh, trade, we are actually much more thinking of getting farmers themselves to be responsive to these issues. And that is why we are interested in them getting stronger and being able to participate in development. Because as soon as they participate and they have something to offer in the market, then they recognize the forces that they have to deal with. And a lot of these negotiations are actually done by governments. So they have to be able to negotiate and put their concerns before their, their own governments, like the bread is doing here, so that they, as they negotiate in these Doha rounds, are they negotiating with the interests of their own farmers? And are they looking at the pros and cons of what they are signing on to? That's one of the weaknesses we have had a lot in Africa. There are lots of agreements signed, but they are not uh, balanced off by the needs of the countries. So if the farmers can be strong and know what their needs are, we, we start a very good chance. When Mercy's talking about farmers, she's talking about African farmers. So we're talking about people yes. usually, you know, it's a family in a mud house with a thatched roof, and they've got a little cassava field. If the field does well, they do fine. 
If that field fails, they go hungry for a long time. So when she talks about empowering the farmers, she's talking about empowering people who themselves go hungry much of the time. Mercy, if our government can figure this out, is this a hopeful time for Africa or is, or is it just hopeless? It's a great opportunity we have now. First, the African governments themselves have recognized they have to put effort and put resources in the agricultural sector. And that's a great move because for the last 20 years, agriculture was completely off the agenda and forgotten. So we have a, a very clear moment in history when governments themselves are putting resources in their own countries to develop agriculture. So that's one thing that the governments in Africa before we even come to foreign aid, are already being very reactive in supporting their own agriculture. Ethiopia is a great example where they have built up their extension service to a very high level. In most of Africa, the extension services to reach these poor farmers, which David mentioned, are non-existent. This is a public good without which farmers will not be able to function. There has to be some support, uh, balancing of what is public and what farmers can do for themselves. Look at the breakthrough with mobile phones now. We can reach the very remote farmers who we couldn't reach. Even when we have challenges of getting people to reach these farmers, we have another tool we can use. So it's a very, it's very a hopeful time. It's a very hopeful moment. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Mercy Karanja from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and David Beckman from Bread for the World. We're talking about smart help for the developing world. Betsy's on the line from Richmond, Maine. Betsy, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Thank you for taking my call. Yeah. Um, I have a friend who joined the Peace Corps last year, and she's now spending two years in the Gambia. And do your guests find the Peace Corps an effective organization for helping people in Africa? Mercy? Yes, indeed. We are actually working with Peace Corps uh, in a lot of our work. We find their experience invaluable. And the fact that they actually go and live with communities, that's extremely valuable. So even when they come back, we want to continue engaging with them because they can inform the American public very factual issues about the rural life in Africa. Now, that's a nice intangible via the Peace Corps. You have people who then become global citizens, and for the rest of their post-Peace Corps lives, they're in solidarity with hardworking farmers in Kenya or whatever. I find that by having someone in the Gambia, I find a much more personal interest in what's happening there and in the broader African community. Um, so if I have a bit of cash to share, what would be the most effective way of, what would be the best organization that would actually really help um, you don't want the money going to the administrative cost. Well, I'll tell you, a lot of people who care are very worried about the administrative cost of the charities and so on. And there's a lot of good charities and there's a lot of sloppier charities and there's organizations that assess them. There's a huge difference between the charity and development aid organizations and advocacy. You know, what David Beckman does is he just employs his staff to help mobilize citizens to get our government to deal with these trade issues smartly and compassionately. My personal feeling is I leverage my dollars by enabling, empowering advocacy groups like Bread for the World to do their work with our government. Oh. Do, have you ever heard of freerice.com? Uh, that's a website where you go and you can do vocabulary and other answer questions. And they say the food goes through the World Food Program from the U.N. Right. They, basically what they're doing is... Uh they get paid by advertisers for you to click on their site. So then they use that money for the World Food Program. So that's fine. You can go to interaction.org. It's an association of about 170 international charities. Most well-established charities that work overseas do a good job. If they belong to Interaction, they follow common standards. That's a good place to find an organization that fits your passions. Oh, thank you. Thanks for your call, Betsy. Bye-bye. Marsha's on the line in Intervale, New Hampshire. Marsha, thanks for your call. Hi. My question was, how can we be sure that the monetary support goes to assist those in need? And um, oftentimes after a disaster, thousands will respond, and later we find out that the aid is being sold on the black market or left in government warehouses and not getting to the intended recipients. And also, uh, there were a couple of organizations, if you could comment on them, as far as their effectiveness and whether, you know, the money 
spent wisely, and that's Doctors Without Borders and the Episcopal Relief and Development. I think in general, well-established charities that work overseas, I think I visited a lot of these programs, and I think in general they do a good job. So you can go to interaction.org. There's, uh, there are 170 agencies that belong to that trade association. They all follow common standards. And then you can, you can just find one you, that fits what you believe in. And if you follow one or two organizations for a while, you'll get to know them and know whether you can trust them. You know, with our government assistance, I think there are some things that we could do better. But overall, I've seen... For example, in Africa, I've met a lot of people who were on death's door with AIDS. And because U.S. taxpayers have paid for antiretrovirals, those people are now able to take care of their families and farms. So I, I think these pictures of gross loss are a little bit exaggerated. Bread for the World's campaign this year is, in fact, to make U.S. foreign assistance programs even more effective than they are because we think we ought to put more money into those programs, but by golly, we ought to make them just as effective as they can be. We ought to get more bang for the bucks we're putting into them. Okay, thank you very much. Thanks for your call, Marcia. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Today, we've been talking about smart help for the developing world. Our guest, Mercy Karanja, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. To learn more about their work, you can see gatesfoundation.org, and David Beckman, president of Bread for the World. And to learn more about Bread's work, go to bread.org. It's an inspiration to see how, when we're confronted with great challenges, both here and around the world, people can get together, governments can mobilize, farmers can organize, and we can feed the world. Thank you so much. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online. It's in the radio section of our website at ricksteves.com. Join us again next time for Travel with Rick Steves. Rick's weekly one-hour radio program, Travel with Rick Steves, airs in more than 100 cities across the country. Listen to podcasts of past shows in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Rick's public television series, Rick Steves Europe, also airs throughout the USA. You'll find the latest on Rick's TV and radio work, as well as his guidebooks and his free-spirited European tour program at ricksteves.com.